Welcome to another episode of the Uru Labs podcast from uh, Bengaluru. Ever complain how bad our cities are, how bad your commute is? You'll get to hear from people who are working to solve these problems in their own way. This is your soapbox for urban sustainability. So do not forget to like, subscribe and share these videos. Check out the entire podcast library and the profiles of the guests on the website podcast.urulabs.com. I'm Satya Shankaran and with me today is Sonal Kulkarni as well. We are joined today on the show by S. Vishwanath, also known as Zen Rainman. Um, almost four decades of being involved in water and its relationship with people, he has seen everything from its usage by the people in the city, from farmers, rural, urban industries, and more importantly, its management, or should I say mismanagement, by the administrators and politicians. He even teaches students on water management uh, in institutions of repute. He used to write a column called Waterwise, which I did not know, in the Hindu for almost 12 years. And I believe, speaking to a friend recently, the Zen Rainman moniker is not what I thought it was for Twitter. He has had that moniker for a long time, almost 30 years is what I hear. But let's get to the context of this. The 2022 August-September floods in Bengaluru inundated around 7,700 houses is what some reports claim. The loss due to these and other buildings, roads, etc. cost more than 400 crore. For some estimates, the ORR companies alone, the Outer Ring Road companies in Bengaluru estimated some 224 crore loss to the occupants around the approximately 20 kilometer road. The Mumbai floods in 2005 was estimated at 20,000 crores. So more than the physical damages, it has also cost lives. We've heard some recent reports in the city as well. An IASC study, uh, which I'll link in the show notes in 2020, predicted 98.5% of Bengaluru will be paved by 2025. Of course, their <coughs> definition of paving also means the non-green areas. Uh, which means almost all of the water that falls on the ground needs somewhere to go. So when we can build all these buildings and bridges of very high complexity, why are we unable to manage water falling on the ground? And there can be no better person to answer this. So let's ask this to uh, Vishwanath or Zendrayman. Welcome to the show, sir. My pleasure, Satya. My pleasure, Sonal. So the... So let's get jump to the first question, which is, can Bangalore actually manage its floods doing what they are doing now? No, uh, the short answer is no. Uh, actually, one of the things to realize Satya, is also that these are not perhaps floods as much as waterlogging. Floods in the classical sense would be when there would be a more permanent sort of inundation. Usually, uh, rivers cause floods. What is happening here is it's more rainwater in small streams and small channels, which is getting blocked at various places, not being enough drainage or enough percolation, which causes this uh, water logging. The impact is the same as floods in the sense that it's tragic that we lose lives to these water logging and that uh, the economic destruction is uh, so huge. But the short answer is that unless we reimagine our relationship with rainfall and understand what's happening in an, uh, in an urban area, in a metropolitan, in metropolis, I, I don't think uh, the water logging will be avoided. Yeah, so um, so we just spoke about uh, how Bangalore, uh, you know, how Bangalore is mismanaging it. So um, I'd like you to, uh, I mean, with your vast knowledge of uh, 
uh, you know this water management i would like to know uh, or like to ask you uh, which are the other countries uh, which are managing it better or cities in india if there are any who are managing it uh, in a good way and what are the best practices around uh, uh, the whole rain water management and you know water manage water management so ironically i think it's bangalore which is managing water the better as compared to let's say for example chennai or mumbai or even delhi at many places and it's also thanks to geology and uh, the fact that we we sit on a ridge line and the city slopes away so there's no excuse actually for us to even have that water logging it takes a special skill to cause these problems that we've caused for ourselves but globally there are cities for example in china which uh, uh, design themselves on what's called the sponge city concept where they actually use water as a resource both ecological biological resource but also as as a flood mitigation tool as a way to improve aquifers in in the ground and water in its com- complex completeness in the sense it's both a social experience it's an environmental ecological recreational experience but also a functional one where we use the water for our needs so i think uh, we have the opportunity to set the benchmark to avoid urban flooding and urban water logging for all other indian cities from a purely hydrological and geological perspective why is it only a recent phenomenon is yes we are we seem to be having more water logging now than before is that has there there are two things right one is we've done something on the ground which is not working and the other thing is more importantly we hear about climate change and rainfall patterns and everything uh has that changed is that also contributing what are these two things that uh, we can lay our hands on right so two things are happening one we are expanding at a rapid scale both population wise but also at a geog- uh, geographic sense no we're urbanizing and the process of urbanizing is one of leveling of uh, land we whenever we build on a site we take the slopes we level it off then we concretize it as you pointed out 98% of bangalore will be concrete or paved which means that there is no space for water to percolate down and most of it will run off and the old systems of water management of running off were designed for irrigation purpose the tanks of bangalore the rajakalvis of bangalore they were designed to hold back water the modern requirement for design is no longer to hold back water uh, it's actually to either drain it away as quickly as possible or if we are smart and sensible to hold on to a little bit of it and recharge the aquifer this a clash between what bangalore was designed for in terms of water in the irrigation system of yore the kere bavi and the kalwe system to the modern system and on the second hand this urban heat island effect that this vast expansion and uh, concretization causes increases the intensity of rainfall it's clear now that whereas in the old days we would get a 60 mm per hour intensity of rainfall we now get up to 220 mm per hour for short durations so there's a factor for rise in the intensity of rainfall large volumes of rain in short durations and there's an increase in runoff by factors of 6 so a double whammy a fourfold increase in rainfall a sixfold increase in in uh, runoff which means that the uh, the drainage system now has to be designed for both these right and the old drainage systems which we depend on revenue maps lines drawn on revenue maps are simply not sufficient so this is what is the issue in bangalore and the drainage system really is uh, is it just the tanks and the rajakalwa the rajakalwa is are basically open uh, drain 
things which lead on to the lakes and you mentioned they were for irrigation there is no more irrigation in the city now right are they sufficient because i the road the drains in front of your house need to take it to the raja kalwe in order for that to drain into the lakes and some of these lake systems have been cut off as well i don't know how much they can hold before they start overflowing how does that work so here's the way the tank system evolved in the sense uh, what we what the old people did was to throw an earthen embankment across a valley to hold on to the water and there was what was called the kodi or the waste way or the overflow way from where it flowed into the kodi kalwe which we now call the raj kalwe it's actually the kodi kalwe which takes the excess water out and puts it into the next tank right and then so on it goes through the river now that was an incremental design which was the thinking was let's hold on to every drop of water because this is a semi arid land where rainfall is precious we need to hold on to the water for agriculture purpose right now even those old systems of yore if they faced an increasingly high rainfall would collapse so many a time the kerries would collapse and the water would flood and then a series of tanks would collapse because the incrementality of the design was 7 to 8 years were less rainfall years and 2 years were higher uh, rainfall years right so that that was the nature of things now when also important to understand the tank system there are something called oshakalways or feeder channels the way water comes to a kerry is through these feeder channels which are small narrow channels of about 1 to 2 feet in width and about a foot to a foot and a half in depth that's all and there's a lot of sheet flow also comes in water doesn't come only in channels it comes as a flow as a sheet flow it comes into the kerry held there fills it up completely and only the overflow is allowed to go out through the kodikal right so the kerry is an impounding structure it's not a flood man- management structure the difference being that in a flood management structure you would have something like the sluice gate or a siphon to release all the water before the next rains come so that then you are prepared to hold on to some water and then allow it gradually so that it doesn't cause damage in the channels so the old irrigation systems when they're meeting the modern uh, flood management systems are completely mismatched so if you ask me what we need now what we need now is a robust master plan first of all we need to understand in the master plan itself what is the land use that is going to be in each one of these micro watersheds or watersheds which feed a lake or a tank right so we need to be clear the master plan in imprinting itself on the watershed the slopes you know the drainage lines all those should be included in the master plan and then now we need a modern stormwater management plan it's no longer useful to have the old uh, stormwater drainage lines we need to modernize it we need to prepare for these higher intensity flows and the higher velocity of flows and the higher volumes of flows these two are currently missing you know that the master plan simply doesn't exist we have a really old one and we still to develop the new one and the stormwater drainage plan is also not there in so far as i understand completely which talks to the master plan there may be stormwater drain plans but there's no stormwater management plans in which the land use the intensity of rainfall and the runoff talks to each other one other lucky thing that we have in bangalore which i just want to mention is that the karnataka state natural disaster monitoring center the ksndmc has set up 99 automatic weather stations across the city some of them are not working but if all of them work we have the highest granular information of rainfall and its intensity for any city in india mm-hmm. perhaps any city in south asia also mm-hmm. so that kind of database is there with us now that database has to start to talk to the master plan and the stormwater management plan 
what does a master plan look like that there is the land use master plan which is our which is what we call as the master plan or the comprehensive yes. development plan what does a water master plan looks like uh, yes. i mean there is of course there is the sewage piece which is separate and then there is this rainwater piece which is also yeah. there how who make uh, has bbs bws made anything like that can i add to this question uh, as to where do you think this master plan can fit in i mean uh, should it be fit in to the city's master plan or in the transport plan or like you know what do you think where does where, where does this water master plan fit in right so i'm, I'm talking about the about the land use master plan itself the way we have it right the, uh, the master plan itself i'm not talking about separate uh, water master plan i'm talking about the current uh, land use master plan so the land the land use plan or the city plan has to recognize many things one that the city is a, an undulating city so it will have to deal as to how, what it wants to do with these slopes would it want to protect the slopes would it want it to be cut so that you have mini landslides or water flows which are completely disrupted or it, would it want to pr protect to the extent possible the integrity of the slopes and the runoff the second thing that the master plan would need to do if it was to deal with water is to deal with aquifers and this is groundwater below so no city in india deals with groundwater right aquifers are simply non existent so therefore you have the consequence uh, that we build two or three basements in these large multi storied buildings and apartments and pump the shallow aquifer water out and throw it into our stormwater drains right and we have destroyed completely the space below those buildings which could hold on to water so including shallow aquifers especially as part of the master plan protecting the shallow aquifers not permitting basements thinking of the infrastructure that we are going to put in which will affect these aquifers for example these wonderful tunnel roads which we are talking about they will disrupt our aquifers so to, to to include those aquifers as part of our thinking in the master plan that's crucial most of the focus seems to be around the lakes and the rajakalways which feed the lakes which is a good thing to do you know that and i know that but like you said they were built for certain purposes and today the land use master plan has had a lot of built up area around these lakes and some of them do end up in places where they were probably the kodi kalways like you said the overflow pieces and they don't see the water there they don't they just kind of say oh they don't have the understanding that it needs to be done uh, but in the land use master plan itself one thing is to imagine the whole city and its network at the large level what then happens to the old way in which we built stormwater drains to the house because as far as i can remember i i've all, all, I've spoken to people who say why is the drain right next to the wall it seems to be always clogged up right and they said that's the only way we can prevent encroachment because that drain actually told us that the road comes to here so if somebody encroaches i can say the drain is your house is on the drain so that's my area so that's just kind of like a fence keeping kind of a thing how can we go down to that level because that's where all the blocks are coming most of the water lagging is local at some level right exactly so basically so there's always a hierarchy of roads as we have it in transport and there's a hierarchy of drains too right so that hierarchy of drains should start from each side which should the runoff from the side which is in excess should be collected in the drain plus the road runoff itself which has to be cambered should come to this stormwater drain and then that drain should meet the next order of drain and so on and so forth collect everything till it takes it to the biggest stream or channel that is there in our city right whether it's the brishwavati river or the dakshin kanakini river one of these two rivers will take away the waters from our city so that hierarchy has to be maintained 
We don't do our roads well. We don't design our roads with the drains well. The drains are done by somebody else. The roads are done by somebody else. The road design itself, including the famous concrete white-topped roads, do not have a camber, do not slope away to make sure that the water goes into the adjacent storm drain. The storm drains can be designed better to infiltrate rather than simply carry it off. They should have infiltration trenches or infiltration wells to push water into the aquifer. And when I was talking to them about the master plan, and as you were mentioning, one of the theories that is running now is transit-oriented development, the so-called TOD master plan, mm. which looks at intensification around the metro line, let us say, or you know, in this connection, metro line. But as we do that, we must understand the implications of that densification. Most roads and most infrastructure disrupt hydrological flows. So roads, on the one hand, not only have to collect the water, but they shouldn't become barriers. Just as an example, on Sarjapur Road, if you go, many the road itself has elevated it to, to such a height, about a foot and a half to two feet above the surrounding gated communities and the layouts there. Right. So the road itself has virtually become a dam. That can't be allowed to happen. So when we talk about master plans, the infrastructures have to talk to each other. A metro station which is located below the ground has to ensure that it, it does not damage aquifers. It does not uh, deplete aquifers. So all forms of in infrastructure above the ground and below the ground should be carefully constructed in discussing, especially with water flows and the greenery around it for us to manage water better. What is the start point of this master plan? Uh, not not the master plan and plus the frequency of the master plan as well. It's once in 15 years. Is that sufficient, you think, as an update frequency for handling water? I don't think it changes that much, uh, the water, but then uh, what? how do you start defining, where do you start defining, at the house level or do you look at the uh, the Rajakalwe and the lakes first uh, or is it an overarching exercise which takes like five years to get done how does this work so most of the waterlogging issues can be sorted out at a ward level so what you need is a ward level waterlogging management plan which will address the the smaller uh, uh, waterlogging challenges that occur for example if there's an underpass this should not be a major city level issue the underpass itself should be designed for it to drain away water or to pump away water and the ward should be responsible to identify that underpass and manage it in such a fashion it doesn't flood or the drainage systems of, uh, which are there adjacent uh, to minor roads should all be discussed at a ward level. Uh, so that's where it, it starts from a decentralized way that we build the networks. Now, major waterlogging areas then becomes part of the uh, city's endeavor to ensure that it doesn't happen. And this is typically at the space where rural or peri-urban Bangalore meets urban Bangalore. When you see the flooding, what you saw last year on Sarjapur Road and Whitefield area will never occur, uh, ever occur again there. It will just move three, four kilometers where the periphery with its lack of infrastructure meets uh, the city, which is fast expanding, right? So there's a constant movement of it. So our master plans have to be dynamic to realize the edges at which these waterlogging challenges will emerge and to sort it out at a decentralized level as much as possible. I just wanted to go back to the story of other cities uh, in how they manage this. We all have stories in other cities. You talked about the Spawn City in China. Uh, there is Netherlands, which is below the sea level, which has managed it very well for a long time. And the most interesting thing I keep coming across, uh, which I need to run through with you, is the, the Japanese way of managing those huge, massive tunnel system that they've built 
from for for managing the river overflow which which actually is the flooding you talk about among all of these things are there some applicability of how we need to do i mean we already have the rajakalwe we have the lake we have the uh, catchment at the local level the network that you talk about does this network need an up, um, rehaul with six times more runoff and yeah. four times more uh, yeah, yeah is the short answer but which one do you think is more if you were because i remember the uh, news item a couple of weeks ago which said that the world bank wants to fund the remodeling and whatever else right what where what is the start point uh, what sorry what is the uh, analogy that we can draw of other cities which might uh, be useful for us to uh, build on so no other cities will have the kind of slopes that we have and the tank ecosystem that we have and the aquifers we have, the geology we have, the rainfall patterns that we have, right? So every city has to learn for itself. And as you know, we are at a point of time in the Kuznets curve of economic growth where we can only put in so much money. Now, our Netherlands can put in 10x time the money that we can. Even a China can put in 5x time the money that they can. We need to do it frugally, as frugally as possible in our current economic state, right? So therefore, what we need to do is to develop a plan in, in which we involve citizens. So citizens become, as the rainwater harvesting uh, bylaw for Bangalore suggests, that every plot should be responsible for a 60 millimeter rainfall event. 60 millimeter. If we are able to get this applied uh, all across the city, we won't have floods or water logging. It's as simple as that. So if the, the compact is in terms of the various learnings at scale that we need to involve the citizenry and the community at. Uh, there are some things that the city administrators need to do, but um, what can citizens or, uh, you know, real estate, the private uh, developers do uh, so, to actually manage water in their property, in their private property? So already Bangalore has thought through the rainfall patterns that we are getting and has put in place the bylaw, the rainwater harvesting bylaw. It says that every site, more than 1,200 square feet in plot area, should be responsible for a 60 millimeter rainfall event on its roof area. Suppose it has a 100 square meter roof area, then it should be able to hold on or recharge 6,000 liters. And the surrounding paved area, it should be hold, able to hold on or recharge 30 millimeters. Right? Now, this is the responsibility of the site owner. He or she cannot simply leave it into the storm drain and uh, allow the city to deal with it, but they should become responsible for it. This is the way mature cities have dealt with it. For example, Frankfurt in, uh, in Germany or other cities in Germany like Hamburg and Hanover, which actually levy assess on you based on the amount of stormwater you leave into the drains, right? So that's a concept, but here it's more democratic and you want to be persuasive. The question is, can we devise technologies by which when you harvest rainwater, it actually benefits you? In the sense, your groundwater table comes up, your well fills up, your bore well has more better water and more water, or your sump has enough water for you to make to do with it. This has been sort of hampered by the fact that pipe water supply is hugely subsidized. So if I'm getting water from the BWSSB reliably, I'm paying seven rupees a kiloliter, which does not incentivize me to hold on to other forms of water. And this is the unfortunate thing that we have to live with. I don't think that prices and prices of water will ever go up Commensurately, the BWS has been trying for it for the last four years and has not been able to persuade the government to, you know, to allow that. So how do we therefore then use the bylaw as well as citizen persuasion to be able to hold on to the 60 millimeter rainfall event? That's the big question. If we do that, 
we don't have waterlogging issues. If we don't do that, we will struggle to manage the water. Quite a few years, uh, rainwater harvesting and other things, thanks to a lot of efforts from a lot of people like you, has uh, improved quite a bit in the city. Uh, what now the challenge really is the public runoff, right? So we already talked about the roads that are not being designed. At a micro level, there are lots of mistakes being made in engineering that seems to be causing all of these problems. Um, and if what kind of capacities do you think exist within the government to manage this? We know there are gaps. You know there are gaps. You've met with a lot of people. On the city building side, the planning side, we know the master plan doesn't take into account uh, water at all or the new the new water reality that we are talking about, the logging, and uh, and it's being built up at a rapid pace and it is not included in in, in the system of planning. In, uh, in the water department itself, what is the awareness and how much can they do? What is the capacities that they have? Uh, are there any uh, gaps you see that still needs to be filled? I think with interactions with you, they have a lot of awareness. But what can they do with that awareness? Yeah, so we have constructed institutions of the 20th century and we are faced with the 21st century problem, right? So in theory, there should be one institution responsible for all forms of water in the city, what we call an integrated urban water management approach, whereby rainwater, stormwater, groundwater, piped water which comes to the city and wastewater or used water or sewage as we call it, all forms of this water talk to each other, planned, are planned and designed. So to be able to be converted to a positive force. Now, what's happened in our city is that the Bangalore Water Supply and Sewage Board is responsible for the pipe water supply and for the sewage. But the moment the sewage hits the stormwater drain, it's no longer the BWSSB's responsibility. It becomes that of the BBMP, right? Now, the BBMP is not responsible for pipe water supply or sewage. So, therefore, there's always this tussle how to design it. They only think of World Bank assistance to take away all this water in their storm drains and ship it out of the city, right? And the lakes then again are not talking to the whole water system they've seen as aesthetic or recreational places, which are not seen as flood protection places in terms of the design. And groundwater is completely left unattended. Now, unless we recreate our institutions with the skill set to be able to manage all the forms of water together, we will constantly struggle. So first at the design stage, we have to think holistically. Then second, we have to build the capacities at the implementation stage. What does it mean to the city that there be no sewage in the lakes? What does it mean that the lakes themselves are desilted often so that when they collect water, they're able to recharge the aquifer? What does it mean to the city to use the aquifer water in the non-rainy season to allow it to have enough storage volume so that when it rains, it can be topped up and filled right, by individuals as well as by collective action? All these will have to talk to each other. We have a few examples of that talking, but we need that to happen at a metropolitan scale. So you were talking about the uh, uh, administration being in the 20th century and uh, we need a different setup for this whole thing, including the integrated urban uh, water management system. Ideally, it's like us chasing the BMLTA or the Bengaluru Metropolitan Land Transport Authority. We somehow got that done, but now to make it work is politically inconvenient for a lot of people. Uh, is that the same fate that an integrated urban water management idea would face? Uh, would it yeah. is it worth chasing that and making that work? 
No, uh, it's definitely worth chasing, but like you know that things won't happen in the short run. So in the short run, we're condemned to suboptimization. So we'll have to live with working from with suboptimal solutions like uh, doing it at a lake level or at a community level where we are pushing the institution themselves to reform and become capable of dealing with the bigger challenge. Right? Just as an example, right now, we have the Kaveri fifth phase, which is to bring in 775 million liters per day to the city, right? But that water has already been swallowed up by the 16 million population we are already. And we're not even thinking of the next phase of water supply. Where is the water to come from? You know, come from? This is closely related to the flooding because it's those flood waters, if used wisely, which will supplement the Kaveri fifth phase waters. So this may be a window of opportunity till the Mekedatu project gets done, whenever it gets done, for us to manage water sustainably in the city to avoid flooding, but also supplement our water requirements. This comes back to why not, okay, now if the World Bank is saying, okay, you remodel your drain cell, pump in another bunch of monies, why can't we use, why, why aren't there uh, supplementary conditions? Aren't these banks supposed to talk about or put preconditions on systemic improvement, economic value of water and all of these things before they dole out such kind of uh, loans? Absolutely. So we don't even know what their plan is and what is being discussed. So that's one thing. There's no transparency to it. But overall, you can't do a simply uh, drainage plan without thinking about the overall water management plan of the city. Mm. For example, again, uh, there's sewage flowing in our drains. Do we want to invest in our sewage network so that there is no sewage in the drain so that when it rains, it's only pure rainwater that goes? If we get pure rainwater in the stormwater drains, then it's possible for us to collect it in our lakes without a problem and be able to recharge the aquifer with it and keep our lakes alive, which would then supplement the water requirement of the city. So you cannot do drainage without sewage networks. It's as simple as that. Now, are, is the World Bank team thinking about it or not thinking about it? We don't. Hopefully, they are thinking about it. If they're not thinking about it, our partners should be thinking about it. But the th- fact of the matter is that the World Bank will be working with the BWSSP. I don't know. Or maybe the BBMP. Which one of these institutions is it working with? What are the mandates of the institution which makes it more holistic in terms of the intervention? These would be questions that we could ask. But there's a lot of money on this remodeling thing, right? Every time we hear about water management, all we hear is remodeling. The one ex- one type of remodeling, what is happening is K100 that Naresh is doing. is trying to clean up and it's the same thing, right? So it's somehow or the other ends up coming into it here or there and it's a big it's like whack-a-mole uh, going around and catching and plugging this hole that hole that's is that one approach of doing is that worth doing second is why is there so much money poured into remodeling of drains and why is that what does this remodeling really mean in so, your understanding so one to, to answer your first question what Narish is doing is 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 absolutely worth doing and it's uh, the only way that we can engage and understand what the problem is with stormwater drains by engaging with it, figuring out that it's sewage flows in the storm drain, it's garbage in the storm drains, all of which is causing the problem of stormwater management itself. Hello to the young fellow, good class on uh, water harvesting and uh, uh, water management, youngest audience that one has. Uh, also, if Naresh can get K100 going, where we map the high flood level, we know where the water will rise. That's thanks to the KSNDMC and IISC bringing the knowledge and the modeling firepower to understand that it's one drain and it can be many other drains which can be done the way Naresh does it, right? Uh, that's the first uh, 
answer to your question. The, the, the second one is that our sewerage networks are dated to 1896. We started our first sewerage network system when the water supply came in. So it's the 20th, not even 20th century, the 19th century legacies. So we need to figure out what we need to do with our network to be able to catch as much of it as possible and take it to sewage treatment plants. If that is not done, then our drainage will not work at its optimal level. Yeah. So that's one of the other challenges that we have to deal with. So I wanted to uh, ask this question. I think uh, it can be a question, uh, you know, prior to uh, the uh, water system you're talking about in Bangalore. Uh, so can you speak a little bit about uh, the history of water management in Bangalore? I mean, as you said, it's, we have to actually take pride in, uh, you know, the fact that someone actually thought about it so many, like uh, more than a century ago, I'm guessing. Yep. Uh, and, and there were 2000 plus tanks in the city. And now we have less than, uh, what, 200 tanks in the city. Yeah. Yeah. So um, just to bring back that pride in uh, Bangaloreans like us, can we speak about the history of this whole water management system in Bangalore and, uh, you know, like what existed and what we have now and how we have to actually hold on to what we have right now? Uh, can we just speak about that? Yeah, so I'll, so I'll have to be a bit of a wet blanket. So there's been a sort of an environmental romanticization that has occurred over the tank systems that we've had, right? So I'll just draw your attention to 1875, 76, and 77, three continuous years of drought. And the glorious 1,000 tanks or 2,000 tanks of Bangalore did not have enough water to support the population of less than 2 lakh people in the city, right? And in the old Mysore kingdom, 1 million people died, died because of drought and famine, yeah? So therefore, at that point of time, the cry in the city was, let's find something more robust and reliable. We can't rely only on these tanks. The tanks are very good when it rains well, but when it is faced with the drought, it then gives up. And then when it's faced with continuous years of drought, it completely collapses. So that's one thing that we learned. And therefore, we put in place the Hesargatta water supply scheme. 1894, we started it. 1896, June 23rd, water first flowed into the city using firewood and steam engines, yeah. And it assured 55 liters per capita per day for two and a half, two and a half lakh people. Then again, in the 1912s, there was a drought for three years and Hesargatta dried up. Hesargatta was not sufficient, so therefore we moved to Tipkotanalli and then we went to the Kaveri ultimately. These are enormous uh, engineering feats which needs to be understood. We created the first water supply utility in India, the Bangalore Water Supply and Sewerage Board, 1964, the first specialized utility. We got money from the planning commission and set up systems for water supply. At the same time, we didn't know what to do. When the pipe water supply came in, we didn't know what to do with sewage. So the first sewage treatment plant of any scale came in the 1970s. Now we have more than 55 decentralized sewage treatment plants. And we're treating this wastewater and shipping it to Kolar and Chikmalapur, treated wastewater, filling more than 300 lakes, which is the second largest project of its kind in the world, next only to that of Mexico City, right? So there's a history of water and wastewater management which has incrementally occurred and which we have addressed through engineering. The challenge comes when the, the problem is no longer engineering but ecological, right? So the skill set with the BWSSB is one of civil engineering. It's supply side oriented. We need now hydrogeologists, we need hydrologists, we need people who can understand the environmental value and the environmental designs around water. That skill set we need to build up in the institution to be able to tackle the challenge that we have. So nothing is in isolation. Stormwater management is not in isolation of water supply. It's not in isolation of uh, lake management and wastewater management. How much we have fallen behind and how much there is to catch up seems a little overwhelming for sure. 
what is the again i will come back to the question i asked in the beginning what is the start point uh, where do we start with this i mean there is some amount of interventions that you and other well-meaning people have done in many areas pwcsp is doing what it can at a transactional level like you said at a civil engineering level is there a water unit that can help put together the plans there's a lot of interest in transport there is a lot of interest in water people like you have done is there a need to scale that uh, any bigger on the so, planning side of things so we start? More. yeah like udya was saying that first yeah. we have to build the narrative right and mm. then slowly uh, ideas are captured and then the governance system realizes what needs to be done and does it it's always a 10 year or a 15 year project and i heard one of your previous speaker i don't know whether it was udya or somebody else was mentioning this particular narrative building that's important right the second is somehow we've lost our uh, ideas of engaging with institutions you know we are easily focused on let's say foam in the sewage uh, uh, lakes and therefore let's do something about it as a technical quick fix but the overall solution requires institution building the bwssb human resource power is no longer enough to address the challenge before us how do we build that uh, institution yeah how do we build the finances finances at the heart of the matter unless the institution which is responsible and accountable for water is financially robust mm. there is no way that it can uh, do anything it can only dream right it can't implement how do we build the finances of those institutions these are two big challenges then comes the challenge of design and then comes the challenge of implementation what kind of a design do we want for our water systems how can it be sort of a compact between society people and the government and then how do we implement it how do we put it in public domain yeah so the beginning is perhaps focusing on institutions and beginning is in narrative building so let's uh, i just want to touch on the finances um, it's it's we know that pricing water is a challenge and they want to keep it as little as possible for political uh, reasons and not take to the true cost of water for many reasons which i know you said many times before is that that can also be slapped in a way that the people who can afford to pay pay for it but be that as it may supply of water is charged sewerage is charged what about drain uh, rain water and the charges what are the sources of revenue that can make this robust in transportation it is easy to do things like tod far and use those accessory revenues beyond fare box to supplement income what are supplementary incomes for water and its agencies so a portion of it has to come from water charges for sure and sewage charges as you said a portion of it but let's realize that this 1450 million liters per day which is coming to the city plus an additional 775 million liters per day runs r- roughly 60% of the state's economy without this water the city of bangalore cannot function so the multiplier effect of the economic multiplier effect of this water is actually the state's economy itself right so how do we take a portion of the of the benefits we get with the livability and the economic returns that this water delivers to the state as a whole and channel it to this water supply and sanitation and stormwater management so that it continues to give us the benefits that it does no one of the things satya is that mm. let's say we pick the kaveri water basin okay we are currently using 6.67% of karnataka's allocation of kaveri water mm. and supporting roughly 40% of karnataka's population in the kaveri basin mm. so the city is the most efficient and effective user of water as compared to rural areas or re- regional areas or agriculture or in, in any other thing 
Now, this is just the physicality of it all, right? Uh, the 6.67% supporting 40% of the population. And then there's the economic support. Like I told you, it's not just supporting the revenue of Bangalore, it's supporting the revenue of the state. And that revenue goes towards physical infrastructure for schools, hospitals, etc., etc., all the social infrastructure that we build, including the free electricity, including the free transportation, all that is supported by this water. So this water deserves attention at a state level, not merely at a city level. And therefore, we must subvent some portion of the economic returns that we get to make sure that the system is robust and continues to do what it does. Let me get this straight. So you're saying 6 to 7% is supporting 40% of the population. Are you saying we should, we should charge more on the rural side to, uh, to, to make fill this? Or are you saying that the city dwellers need to support it more? How are we looking at this? No, I say I'm saying that uh, there's no justification to think that the city is snatching away some somebody else's water. Okay, uh, it's also I don't see why a slum dweller in Bangalore who's consuming less than seventy liters of water does not have more of a right than the than the two crore liters needed for one hectare of sugar cane. Mm. Uh, we got to get those figures right, and if you're looking at it at a basin scale. We must also understand that the water that Bangalore consumes is not just consumed in Bangalore, it just makes a pit stop on its way to Kolar, Chikbalapur and Anekal and benefits farmers there and lakes there if we design systems more and more better. And Satya, just as an information, in Devanhalli, next to the fort, we've just working with from Biome and with other partners, we've been able to rejuvenate a small lake which receives a mix of rainwater as well as treated wastewater, recharges the aquifer, is picked up in the well and supplies drinking water to the town of Devanhalli. So what is Bangalore's used water can support towns like Kolar, Chikbalapur, Devanhalli, Nelamangla, and so on and so forth. So how do we imagine Bangalore and its role and the role of the water that comes in and how do we make sure that that investment is commensurate with the needs? So a 10,000 liter, uh, 10,000 crore investment in water will bring you more bang for the buck than the 50,000 crores for underground roads in the city. Tell me about the narratives you've heard in your travels. You just mentioned the Devanali story. Are there any other stories on the urban side of things that you think is making this narrative building a little more effective? How much more of those can be replicated? What stories can we take forward between you and Biome and all the work that you guys have done? Which ones do you think shine out as so an two, example two, that you can show? Two, one, two of them that I have to mention. One is the uh, rail wheel factory where a very good uh, engineer called Ajay Sikh worked mm. on reviving the old wells there and the wetland there. Mm. And the water requirement of the rail wheel factory portion of it just comes from the wells of the rail wheel factory. It doesn't need Kaveri water. It doesn't need any other water. And it's a substantial investment for the Kaveri water. But with the minimum investment in reviving the wells, they were able to completely overcome their water uh, shortage, which they had and the price that they had to pay for the water. The second is a more robust story for me. We revived six wells in the town municipal council of Unsumarnalli, which just lies outside BBMP area on the way to the airport. Mm. In three of the open wells that we revived, old open wells full of junk, the municipality put in pumps, uh, we put in pumps for the municipality and the municipalities gave the water to the apartments surrounding nearby and the municipality charges a flat fee of 120 rupees a month. So there's no restriction on the pumping from the well. But in three other wells, the women came and said, please don't put a pump in these wells. If you put a pump, the water goes to the richer apartments. The well will go dry. We will not have water. We will rather go to this well and pick water from our bindigays, you know, the pots that we have. Why? Because we know the quality of this well water. We are otherwise paying 5 rupees for 20 liters in the RO plant. For every bindigay we get from the well, we save 5 rupees. So if it 
four bindigays, that's 20 rupees a day, which is 600 rupees a month. And we have sustainable water whenever we need it for specific purpose, drinking and cooking. So this sense of the limit of the resource available, how do we engage with it and how do we use it judicially comes out from this story of the women in the well in Hunsuman Valley. Now, unless we send those right signals of demand management to the, to the larger consumers of water, and the only way we can do that is through pricing, we don't have control on use, right? So therefore, how do we bring this uh, narrative and storytelling that there is a limit to the water that we can use and that we need to respect it is, is, is a challenge. There are two ways. One is definitely the pricing is not in the hands of uh, civil society actors. Uh, but from what you have been doing very inspirationally in keeping the water uh, story afloat, uh, what are the kinds of engagements that others can step in and do? There are there are lots of people working on water, uh, the Friends of Lakes. There's a lot of things around lakes and very highly visible big things. At the personal level, rainwater harvesting systems, I've been a big beneficiary of what you put in. So I can get water at 50 feet and my neighbor is at 1,500 feet. Just because I invested in pumping the water back into my uh, borewell, uh, and uh, that's telling today, 20 years since we've, it's been 20, no, maybe 17 years since I moved in here, my water is still at 50 feet. Uh, so this is, the personal benefits are stories to be told. And uh, where do you see the civil society's participation? How do you see it? Is there more to be done? So the civil society does a good job of flagging the pollution in lakes, for example, Belandur and Vartur. And there are signs there and there's a demand. There's even cases filed in the NGT to clean the switch in the lakes. But I don't see civil society saying we will pay the true price for water. If the polluter pays principle is at operation, where is the switch coming in? And if I am generating the switch, I'll pay the full cost for the switch to be collected, conveyed and treated. I don't see that part of the argument coming. There's always a demand on the system to clean it up as though it will happen miraculously. What happens is that some subvention of the government somewhere else is diverted to these lakes to clean up that act temporarily, right? So a Belandur and a Vartur revival comes at the cost of many other things which could have happened with that bundle of money. And it's also not sustainable because the true polluter is not paying for the water, for, for the treatment of the wastewater. So how do we, like the Dublin principle, and I was drawing your attention to the fourth point of the Dublin principle, saying that water is a human right for sure. But beyond a certain volume, water is also an economic good. And the true ecological cost of water is captured when we return it back to nature in the same quantity and quality at which we appropriated it. If I take 100 liters of fresh water from the Kaveri, the true cost of water is captured when I return back the same point, at the same point where I took the water, at the same quality at which, at which I appropriated it. And we have the technologies for it. We can do an M MBR uh, membrane bioreactor filter and treat switch to that standard and return it back there. The only problem is it costs 95 rupees for a thousand liter for that to happen. Are we willing to pay that 95 rupees to the institution? Remember, we are willing to pay much more for tanker water. We are willing to pay much more for RO water, but we are not willing to pay the uh, slightly lesser cost of the water to the institution which can actually do it and therefore not disturb the environment or ecology. And especially those who can afford to, if they don't pay the true price for water, then those who can't afford to will not have access to it. Mm -hmm. In the name of the poor, 
we are not only doing disservice by giving water to the rich, but we are doing a disservice to the environment in which the cost of that pollution is being borne again by the poor people. So at the base of it is finance. And we must, as civil society, grapple with the finances and say, how is the money to come from? Where is the money to come from for keeping the system sustainable? The downstream effect of uh, paying for that water would also mean that there is enhanced capacity for the uh, agencies to manage our water logging better. Maybe the capacity, of course, needs to be built. Like you said, you need to build a completely different <coughs> institution uh, to manage water logging. And, and, and it's cross-domain, right? BWSSB is not the one building the roads. And even if you capacitate BWSSB with all of these things to manage water better and do all of those things, I don't know if that would really mean BBMB starts laying better engineered roads. Can that can that correlation even be drawn? Or that needs Absolutely. to be worked on? Better design roads. We must have a design. The first thing I was taught in civil engineering the first semester is that the road has a camber. In the sense, it has a slope where the water is taken to both sides of the road. And at the end of the camber, there are stormwater drains. This is not rocket science to put a small stormwater drain which collects all the road runoff and picks up the house runoff and takes it in a slope to the next hierarchy of drains. So it boggles the mind that some of the basic stuff we do so badly, but some of the complex stuff we do pretty well. Like the wastewater treatment plant in Cover Park actually takes sewage and converts it to drinking water standard. The 150 million liters per day wastewater treatment plant, which is set up in the Bridge Valley now, actually we measured the water quality, which was coming out of the wastewater treatment plant. It meets drinking water standards, BIS 10500. So we're able to do that. And in some pockets, we're not able to do the basics, right? So that's always uh, something that uh, <laughs> uh, flummoxes me in terms of the human uh, and institutional capacities that we can build. On that note, uh, I would like to thank you, uh, Vishwanath, for shedding light on this wonderful uh, uh, issue of water because I've always ignored water and took it for granted <clears throat> until it stops coming. Uh, and when we just go and kind of ask the wall men to open the water for a little while and then we forget about it. The management of water in the house, the supply of it, the management of sewerage and the management of water logging on the roads are all interlinked and uh, uh, the economic cost of it needs to be paid, but the capacities within the government to do simple things right, uh, I think needs to be fixed. I don't know, you've spent a lot of years doing that and I'm hoping that uh, it gets better as we go along. There is more capacity. We build capacity for not just the 21st century, but the 22nd uh, as well, uh, looking forward. and, and capacity not just within the water company, right? It's capacities across yes. everybody dealing with the urban space from starting from the master plan all the way down to the building bylaw enforcement authority to the builders of the roads and the multitudes of agencies that build roads in our cities. Uh, it's a wicked problem. Uh, any parting words problem. on that? Yeah. And like Sonal was pointing out, one of the other things in a master plan is where do we locate our sewage treatment plants? Yeah, it's always so. not in my ba- backyard. Like solid yeah. waste management plants, sewage treatment plants are not welcome in any neighborhood, right? But unless we locate them, how do we treat sewage? And so the consequence of that not locating the sewage treatment plant is more, more pollution. How do we fix this? Right? So these, these would be some of the challenges that we as civil society have to address. All right. Thanks, Vishy, for uh, joining Bye. us today. Uh, a reminder for everyone to like, subscribe, and share. Uh, uh, see you all next week. Thank you. Thank you.